to be in the gospel ministry these days, particularly as a younger man, to enter the gospel ministry these days is going to take a great amount of courage. It does in every generation, of course, but perhaps in the last few weeks of the turmoil we see internationally, uh, you know, the courage it takes to step in the ministry because in moments where people are looking for courage, convictions, uh, where to go, what to think, how to think, how to feel, how to respond, uh, you have to sort those things out for yourself first in order to say something to others. And uh, three weeks ago, when uh, the present conflict in Israel, the Gaza Strip, uh, started on October 7th, and since then I've been thinking about that, and um, I guess it was on my mind that it would be good just for today uh, to take this Sunday to uh, pull the, as we would call it, the uh, expositional train where we would normally be going verse by verse, just pull it into the station and get off at this contemporary issue of what do we do uh, when it comes to Israel and what the Word of God has to say about Israel. And there's a lot that can be said about it. Um, you have to narrow it down, otherwise where do, you, where do you begin really and where does it end? Um, but we're going to look at that question today and we'll look at it kind of how Paul addressed as we were in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 where he started just saying, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be unaware. And really taking that same sentiment that Paul had in 1 Corinthians 12 to say, hey, we need to talk about spiritual gifts right here. Uh, today would be a good day to say, now concerning the word of God in Israel. Well, what, is, what does God's word have to say about them? And we're going to look at that today. And um, really what I want to do twofold in that is, one, I just want to be able to provide greater clarity in how we're thinking about it. Um, and just uh, in, the, in the midst of a lot of news cycle, whether you go uh, reading the newspaper in one hand and your Bible in the other, as the old adage is, uh, really we, we need to think clearly because it's not even one in each hand, the Bible and the newspaper. It's um, we read our Bibles and we filter everything else through it. Whatever event there is going on in the world, whether just in our individual lives or, or widespread, it's... It's the lens through which we see everything. And, and the, the beauty of the Word of God is it gives you 20-20 vision. Uh, you may not become some foreign policy expert in the next uh, hour here, but you will understand what biblical convictions you need to have about what God's Word says very clearly about the people of Israel. So one is to give you clarity in your thinking. The other would maybe be, be able to help um, our hearts, how we feel about it, to have more charity, uh, not just to one people group, uh, when it can be easy based on our own view of the world to just kind of quickly want to divide out into, you know, the good and the bad, the right and the wrong. And I know we're informed by a number of experience in our education, and some of you maybe were political science majors, and you would school me in that. All I'm saying is there should be, as we saw in 1 Corinthians, the chapter on love, a certain amount of charity that we can look at nations indiscriminately, or as the Bible would describe, impartially, when, and have compassion for whoever is losing someone they love, whatever ethnic group they are that there would not be a, a, a partiality in us, even though today we will see of God's love to the people of Israel as presented in the Scriptures. So my desire that is twofold, is, is to provide clarity in how we think and charity in how we feel. The challenge today, um, just jumping into it, is 
you know, where do you begin? And, and as I kind of processed that over the last week after I was away, it was just to say, I need to start, I had to start my own study with just bringing it down to one simple question that maybe would be where we would find our path forward. And that simple question was, what does the Bible say about Israel when under attack? Not just what does the Bible say about Israel. Again, that could go a lot of different ways. But the question I'll set out the answer today is what does the Bible say about Israel when they are under attack? And the answer that I will posit now and then seek to prove from the scripture is this, that God's promise to the people of Israel throughout the Bible does not unconditionally protect them from persecution by enemies, nor absolve them from God's judgment for their unbelief in Jesus Christ. And I know that's a mouthful. And also, in a topical sermon, when I'm putting the, um, the goods on, on the counter right out of the gate, normally we start with a text, and, and it's more of an inductive study where we walk through a text and it comes alive. This is deductive. This is, here's a statement, and now from that, let's walk back through it and show it. And that's really when you preach topically what you have to do. You have to pick a starting point. And I didn't just go like... Boom, Acts 28, the natives showed us extraordinary kindness. How's that to relate to Israel? No, you just say, okay, what's a, maybe what's a driving thought, concern, question that thinking and feeling Christians would have today? And the question was, what does the Bible say about Israel when under attack from enemies? So th- that's what we're going to seek to answer today. And why we're going to do that is because... Um, because as the church were called in 1 Timothy 3.15, as the household of God, the church of the living God, not to give our political opinions, we are charged to be the pillar and support of the truth of God. That's why we speak to it, is because when, when, when the foundations of society are crumbling, the church will what? It'll stand. And as the church stands, the church needs to speak. And again, not out of some political bias, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat. It needs to speak as the scripture says it speaks, as the church of the living God, the the pillar in support of the truth to show that God has a word that is unchanging and unbreakable. And when society caves, his truth stands. And we just sang of that truth, didn't we? That... What is our hope in life and death? It's Christ. And when the waves draw us nigh, what shore do we land on to stand on? On the shores of the rock of Christ. So, so in Matthew 7, where I had to turn at the beginning, I just want to read the closing of the Sermon on the Mount to, to have in our minds why the Word of God is the rock on which we stand and everything else is shallow and sinking but the word of God is our rock. Matthew 7, 24, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, he will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And it fell and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. 
for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. This is the unfading and unchanging word of God, authoritative, inerrant, and infallible, and for us to learn from and grow in today. May he bless the preaching and hearing of it. So going back to that opening statement, that answer to the question, what does the Bible say about Israel being under attack? The first line of it was God's promise to the people of Israel throughout the Bible. That's the first answer. What do we know about Israel being under attack? Well, our first answer today is God has a sovereign word that still stands over Israel. Our first point, his promise. Well, what's his promise to the people of Israel? Where does it begin? Where do we find it? Do we just, as I joked before, just open our Bible and look for some promise to Israel and claim that? You need to go back to the starting point, and that's in Genesis chapter 12. They had a starting point with a single individual who was called out by God to trust him in faith, and that was Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. God's sovereign word over Israel began with the Lord speaking to Abram, not even Abraham yet, who was out of Ur, a pagan land who worshipped pagan gods, as did everyone in that time. And the Lord speaks to Abraham and says, Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. You know what that is? That's the beginning of a, a call to repentance. To say whatever way you think you should be living, whatever you've been taught, whatever you know, whatever heritage you have, Whatever people you've listened to, voices you've trusted, truths you've believed, I'm calling you to leave that. That's the start of repentance. That's the start of living a life of faith. It's the Lord calling out to Abram saying, I'm calling you to leave your country, leave your relatives, leave your father's house, and go to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. How? I will bless those who bless you, and one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. About 4,000 years ago, God chose an individual in his sovereign electing love to be the father of faith to a people of faith who were yet to be born. God determined in advance in that statement there. In you all the families of the earth will be blessed, that God would bring blessing to the world for all who would believe in faith in him. And eventually those heirs, putting their faith in Christ, would be children. As Galatians 3.29 said, if you were Christ, you were Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. By grace, through faith, is and has been and will always be the answer to how does anyone come to God? When I was away two weeks ago and hanging out at a playground, pushing my kid on a swing, God sovereignly brings this older gentleman to push his grandson next to me. And we strike up a conversation. And, uh, I, you know, I'm not the type that immediately is going to turn to him and say, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen? Have you, you know, and that's one way to do it. But we're just enjoying a day in the fall up north 
me pushing my kid, him pushing his grandkid. And this, you know, as he talks about his own life, as I'm asking him questions, he turns around and what do you do? And okay, I'm a preacher. And he goes, okay, I'm a Catholic. Okay, Protestant, you know, and, and he, he and I started talking and he, he was interested because he said, you know, normally people aren't striking up this type of conversation, but even in light of the recent events, this uh, thing over in the Gaza Strip had only happened recently. And, you know, it, it kicks up in people uh, questions about what they believe and why they believe it and even origins of what people believe. And he goes, well, I, you know, after I'm, I'm explaining him as a Catholic that the gospel is a gospel of, by, of grace. It's not by works. And as I'm explaining that to him, he says, well, I got a, I got a stumper for you, which I'm usually uh, ready for this stumper because it's usually the one a lot of people have. Well, how's come? Because that's the kind of people where I came from talk. How's come? Uh, some people uh, who were born over into Hinduism or Islam or whatever, how's, how's come they're not going to get to hear? How's that fair? And I said, well, listen, friend, I got a question for you. You know that Bible that you said you don't read? Um, up until the time that Christ comes in the Gospels, which is about two-thirds of the way through. How does anybody come to faith in God prior to him? And he just, I never thought about that. By grace through faith, God has a way that every person will have an opportunity, because he's a just God and he's a good God, to have an opportunity to trust in him by grace through faith. That's how he did it in the Old Testament. And, you know, for my friend Dom... That was enough for him to be a little more interested, but still not be able to take that step of faith because he's going against, as I talked about in Abraham, a whole lifetime of believing. I got to earn. I got to work. I got to strive. But what do we find at the beginning of the story of Israel with Abraham? There was no working. There was no striving. There was no selection based on his qualification, was there? There's no white space between the end of Genesis 11:32 and Genesis 12:1 that says, "Oh, by the way, uh, God kind of looked out over all of the earth, and there was only one guy who uh, really was a really good guy, because that's really how it goes, right? If you're a good person, you'll get chosen." You know, God just looks out and He says, "I'm going to choose Abraham," and that's where it all began by grace for Abraham and. That's for us. That's, that's when you want to talk about continuity in your Bible from cover to cover. How does anybody get saved? By grace, through faith, and not of your own doing, so that no one may boast. So that's where it starts, but where does it go? Well, two generations later, if you move 30 chapters forward in the story of the patriarchs, the, the founding fathers of faith in the Bible, you have two generations later, you have a grandson named Jacob, and he's a man of the wild. He wrestles uh, with an angel in Genesis 32 until daybreak because he's been a man on the run. He has not lived by faith. He has felt since the time he came out, he's got a what? Grasp. He's got to earn. He's got to prove. He's got to take for himself. And finally, the message gets through when God has to wrestle him to the ground. And then, sorry, WWE fans, no top turnbuckles, but there is a displaced hip that the angel says to him, what's your name? And he says, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you've striven with God and with men and have prevailed. That's where the name Israel comes in. A name that means striving, striving with God, wrestling with God. Two generations later from Abraham, Jacob 
has the promise of God passed on to him and through him into his offspring. But when did we see the beginnings of the nation? Still just one man to a son to a grandson. Well, Genesis 46, two generations later, Jacob is good and old and he thinks he's lost his favorite son, Joseph. But Joseph for, for almost 20 years has been in Egypt and now Jacob finds out that he, Joseph is still alive End of Genesis 45 and says, I'm gonna go and see him before I die. And he sets out in Genesis 46. He stops to offer by faith a sacrifice to God, the God of his father, Isaac. Genesis 46, 2, God spoke to Israel in visions in the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. God said to him, I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great, what there? A great nation. So that's where it begins, in Egypt. And he passes on the blessing in Genesis 48, 19 to Ephraim, the younger brother, and he'll be greater, and out of him will come a great nation. So, skip a few chapters ahead over to Exodus 1, and what do we have? We have the nation of Israel. Now, Joseph has died, verse 6, and all of his brothers in that generation. So, hundreds of years later, the sons of Israel are fruitful and increasing greatly, multiplying, becoming exceedingly mighty, and the land is so filled with them that it catches the attention of the leaders, and so begins the long story of Israel being in subjection by oppressors as God sovereignly chooses them for his purposes. That would lead in Exodus 1 eventually to their deliverance and departure for the promised land. But here's all I want to establish, and this is the story of Israel from the jump. From the start, God's word is sovereign over their lives at every twist and turn. No prosperity and no adversity is happening outside of the foreordained will of God. That's it. That's their story. And that's even amidst, and, and uh, we're going to uh, skip ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 7 in the, in the wilderness. And they've been wandering because they've been disobedient to this God who delivered them. And he gives them, I don't want to call it a second chance, he gives them a second law. And Moses comes to them now in his old age and says, look, your first generation didn't get it, but you get a chance to get it. And here's how you need to get it. Don't become like the pagans around you, Deuteronomy 7. Because if you do, they'll turn you away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. Why are they to do this? They're to be a people set apart. Deuteronomy 7, 6. You're a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And in that moment, if they're sitting there saying, why did he do it? What was so great about our forefathers that he chose us? Here's the answer, Deuteronomy 7, 7. We should know this verse and celebrate it because it's our story. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you. Like, just stop there. The Lord did not love you nor choose you because you're you. It's because he's him. This is how the Lord sovereignly elects. He didn't bring you out by, uh, because you were more in number, you were better, you had some qualification. He brought you because the Lord loved you. That's his reason. God chose to love Israel because God chose to love Israel. If you're in Christ this morning, 
the big why. Why you're in this room. Why you got a Bible open in front of you. Why you sing to the Lord this morning. Why you moved in your affections. Because God chose to love you because God chose to love you. You good with that? You want to add something to the end of that? What could you possibly add to the end of it? To sit there right now and in the heart of hearts say, God chose to love me because he chose to love me. Think of the people that you wish were sitting here with you today, Christian. People in your immediate family, people in your extended family, neighbors, friends, co-workers. Sure, you could probably think of a litany of reasons why they're not here. The things that they love of this world, the past that they've chosen, the, the desires that they've had. And yeah, there might be a human explanation for it. But what's the real explanation for it? You're here and they're not. You're in Christ and they may be not because God chose to love you. Why? Because he chose to love you. That's amazing. That should lead us to worship. Pure worship to him. And that's what we start with in Israel's history. And it gets, it gets worse. They get put into exile. I won't go to Daniel 9 today, and even though I had plans for it. But Daniel 9, we were there last year. And that prayer that Daniel makes in chapter 9... What was it other than him to say, it's to our shame. Oh, there it is up there. or No, it isn't. That's still Deuteronomy 7. But it's to our shame, O oh God, that we are where we are. We have sinned against you. Righteousness belongs to you. And if we're ever going to get back to the land and be restored, it's not on merit of our own, but on the account of your great compassion. That's the story of all people who come by grace through faith. It is not on our own merit, but on the compassion of a loving God. And so that leads us, like Paul in Romans eleven thirty three, that after explaining salvation history, especially in 9 through 11, and answering the question of what do we make of Israel? Are they done? Is God done with them? He says, no, he's still got a plan for them. But rather than try to take that and run it out to answer all the questions and put God on the dock and like the, the, uh, the clay talking back to the potter, why do you do this and why do you do that? Paul says, no, let me end it here in 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So, so maybe the only thing you add after the line of why did God choose to love Israel? Because he chose to love Israel. Why did God choose to love me? Because he chose to love you. Why? Oh, the depths of the riches you have in Christ. Because in the plan of God and in the purposes of God, he set his love on you. Oh, the depths. So when you're trying to make sense and think clearly about what's happening in your own life or in the world today, and maybe things have been a little foggy lately, a little bit murky, because life has thrown you, whether it is you get caught up in reading a lot of the news and it, it, it causes a little bit of fearfulness in you or confusion or whatever it is, uh, have you been in the depths lately of the Word of God so that you can rise above what's going on around you and give Him worship? You don't get there playing in the shallows of Fox News. Sorry to offend you. Or CNN. Or Wall Street Journal. Or New York Times. That's playing in the shallows. Do you need to be informed? Yeah. Do you want to know what's going on? Absolutely. 
But you won't be raised to worship God out of what's going on right now if you don't plunge into the depths of the wisdom of God in His Word. That is the lens that allows you to see clearly right now. Can you say amen to that? All right, then we can move on. God's Word is still sovereign over Israel and His electing love. And then in that second part of that opening statement, what do we do about the protection of, from enemies and the judgment on them? Well, God's Word is still serious to Israel. How serious did the Word of God get to Israel? As serious as it was for their, their, their disobedience of Him throughout the Old Testament, here was the true test. When Jesus Christ came, the Messiah, the Anointed One of God, the Son of God, the Son of Man in, in Daniel, when He shows up on the scene speaking the words of God and doing the works of God undeniably and out of this world experience nobody could explain away other than accuse him of being demon-possessed. What do the people of God, Israel, do with Jesus? They reject him. They reject him. And the height of this rejection comes near the cross, Matthew 23, when he pronounces woes, curses. This is reflective of the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy. Choose life, Israel. Walk in my ways. Fear me, love me, obey me, or this will be the curse. This will be a woe. And what does Jesus have for the scribes and Pharisees and people of his day? He has pronouncement of woe curse. This is his serious word to them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Matthew 23, 29, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we'd have been living in the days of our fathers, we'd have not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. You know what they're doing right there? In their self-righteous assurance saying, yeah, you know, past generations may have screwed some things up, but we got it. And he says, you got it, but you don't have me, so you don't get it. And you're not just like your forefathers who stoned the prophets, like, or who, who rejected the prophets that came, the Isaiahs and the Jeremiahs and called you to repentance, that your forefathers mocked and ignored and rejected, that got them in exile. You've gone above and beyond that because I'm standing here, a greater one than Isaiah, a greater one than Ezekiel, a greater one than Jeremiah, a greater one than Moses, a greater one than Solomon, and you reject me to your face. You testify against yourselves that you're the sons of those who murdered the prophets. So fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Was it all judgment in that moment? Was there compassion in that moment of this most severe judgment Jesus is pronouncing on those leaders who by proxy represent an apostate nation? Matthew 23, 37, listen to the compassion. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. I love you. But you are unwilling. 
Unwilling to what? Unwilling to see me, to behold me, to believe in me, to put your hope in me. You are unwilling. So here's the severe judgment. Here's the serious word that still stands over Israel to this day as judgment for their rejection of the Messiah in Matthew 23, 38. Behold, listen up, Israel. Your house, your life, your land, any future prosperity for you is being left to you desolate. You know what that word is? 48 times used in the New Testament, 32 of them, it's translated wilderness. You know where you are, Israel, thousand years later? You're back in the wilderness. And you're going to be left wandering here until one day you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's the word for Israel that still stands today. A most severe judgment. A rejecting of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And as long as that rejection remains, so does God's serious word of judgment remain. Their house is left to them, desolate, barren, still wandering in the wilderness, apart from what? Apart from the promise made back in Genesis 12. And God's word cannot be broken. A word of promise, but a word of judgment. Yet sometimes today, if we don't have a proper understanding of where Israel is even now, then we might think there is some promise of unconditional protection for them, uh, irrespective of their actions. Not long after the attack on October 7th, a U.S. senator made a statement along the lines of, Hamas should fear the wrath of God for their actions. In reference to, aren't, don't, you, don't they realize who they're messing with here? And, and on one level, sure. Any person who would do such despicable, unadulterated evil is to massacre civilians, to make a statement and to, to fulfill the charter in 1988 of Hamas that says we're going to wipe clean every square inch of Palestine with anybody who's not us. If you're going to live that out and take those lives, you should fear the wrath of God because he is against those who are evil and wicked to that degree. Men of violence, he calls them in Psalm 11. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, who could, who could massacre an innocent child and celebrate it and say, God did this. Praise Allah. The one who loves violence, God's soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. So is that for me to take up arms against them? Not necessarily. Is it for me to pray for God to deal with evil far more than I could? Absolutely. God hates the soul of the one who loves violence. Friends, we don't need to nuance terrorism. 
It doesn't need to die the death of a thousand qualifications and try to back things up and determine who's at fault here. Just war? Sure, have at it. But to call evil, evil, it is the call of the Christian. And to do it without talking out of both sides of our mouths doesn't mean we can't have compassion. Doesn't mean we, we can't want to listen, be slow to speak. But when we do speak, we have testimony from the scriptures that the Lord does see from his holy temple in heaven. His throne is in the heaven. His eyes do behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. He is not blind to every single act of evil going on across the world right now. He sees it. He knows it. And he will judge it. And he does have a perfect holy hatred to the one who loves violence. Now, all that being said, does that make us one ounce better than anyone else apart from Christ? It doesn't. It doesn't. Does it give us the right to stand in judgment over others rather than, as Romans 2 would say, we, we are under the judgment of God. If we're not in Christ, if we're not found in Him, you who suppose this, who pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, will you escape the judgment of God? Paul asks. Jew or Gentile? Rejecter of God's law or keeper of it? Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. See, what that senator got wrong, he was right to call evil for what it was, as was our president. To just call it unadulterated evil needs to be said. But what we get wrong is when we think... Um, Oh, they did that to Israel. Those are the truly wicked bad guys and we just need to be one-sided in this and not say, well, wait, where does Israel stand right now in their rejection of the Messiah? Not saying somebody that's Jewish can't come to Christ. Praise God, they do. But collectively, whether you are outside of the law, Paul would say, or you put yourself under the law, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So how did Jesus handle it when some people want to come along and say, well, you know, I know these atrocities happen and these catastrophes, but I can really explain it. There's the good and the bad and only the bad die young. Go to Luke 13. You want to know how Jesus responded to people that think they had the moral high ground to just see some calamity happen and then move to causality and say, let me explain this to you. I'll, I'll tell you exactly why those people died and these people didn't. Jesus tells a story in Luke 13 that gives all of us pause. And he talks about catastrophes happening. And he uses two real occasions that happened in that time period. One we would call an unexpected catastrophe when a, when a tower falls and kills 
18. Or one we would call an unjust atrocity when a, when a bloody government slaughters innocent worshipers and mixes their blood with the sacrifice they were coming to give. And when, when some religious know-it-all comes up to ask Jesus, hey, don't you suppose, you know, that the, 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 the wicked people died when the Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices and when, when the tower fell, the culprits died, the bad guys, the bandits. That's how it works, right? It's just that easy. Bad things happen to bad people. So the 18 people that were crushed under that tower and that catastrophe, all the bystanders around them, they must have really read their Torah that morning. They were spared. And it must have been only the hypocrites who were there offering their sacrifices that morning when they were wiped out and their blood mixed. But all the sincere ones, is, that, is Jesus going to say, yeah, that's exactly how life works. It just falls in those even categories. What does he say? Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And then he answers the question of what do we do with catastrophes, unexpected ones, hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, towers that fall. Do you suppose that those on whom the tower fell were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What, what, what truth is he teaching here? The lesson to learn when we see catastrophe, when we see calamity, when we see atrocity, is before we are quick to make any judgment relating that calamity to some causality, we are to examine our own mortality. Where do you stand with Christ today? Unless you repent? He's not saying you're going you're to perish immediately. No one knows when they're going to go. What he's saying is to slow down and think if you, like Job's friends, can step back from a situation and in your worldly wisdom just let it all be laid out and you say, you know, I see this from beginning to end. No, you don't. Only God does. Only God sees it from beginning to end. But the lesson we learn in this, even though we can look at our word and see where God does have a word of serious chastisement to those who reject him, when we see death, when we see terrorism, or when we see death by unexpected catastrophic causes or natural causes, whatever it might be, the first lesson we have to go to is our own heart. Where do I stand with God? And do I stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? That's the only acceptable answer there. Not that I've been a good person, maybe a better person than that person who just suffered that consequence. You go down that path, you're right where these self-righteous, religious hypocrites stood with Jesus that day. He says, you have to check your own heart today. You need to repent. And all repentance is an act of the grace of God, of course. But those who it's really hard to get this are the self-righteous. Because in their 
their view of things. They're not that bad. What do I, if I'm going to repent and change my mind, what do I have to change my mind about? I'm a good person. Well, repentance is a change of mind, seeing, as I said about going back to Abraham, all the ways and all the works and all the wisdom I think I bring to the table, they vanish when I compare them to God. I'm not good enough. I'm not pure enough. I'm not holy enough. Any of it. I only have any standing before him in the wisdom and righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. That's where repentance starts for the self-righteous. That's it. Now, what do you, where does repentance start for somebody from another religion, from, from Islam, when, when their, their whole religion, this false religion, is set up on the lie? It's the, it's the opposite of what we learn here in the Scriptures. Well, they've got all that working against them. Now, they at least think they're earning something. They're working somewhere. But don't think just because you might have been raised in the church, that you have some upper hand on that. You may be even deeper into your own belief and your own goodness, your own performance. And by God's grace, that deception needs to fall today. To, to say that what Jesus says, so, so somebody over there, some, some terrorist, yeah, they're a greater sinner than me. Are they? How do you come to God? Cleaning yourself up? Standing in your own righteousness? Opening your Bible to where you wrote in it where you accepted Christ? Pointing to your baptism? How many days you went to church this year? How many days in a row you read your scriptures? When it comes down to this, I say, yeah, you're showing me all these things down here, but where does your righteousness stand? It's at the right hand of God in heaven. My righteousness is found in Him and in Him alone. And if you don't know that absolutely for a fact today, I love you. And in the patience and kindness of God, He's brought you here to hear this. You need to drop the self-righteous, religious veneer. Bible Belt USA. You need to say, my only righteousness comes from Jesus' blood and righteousness given to me, not earned. That's how I stand before him. And now, when I look to assurance, I look to him. And my hope that is in Christ will be evidenced by the fruit of my life. That's the fruit of your life. But the root of your salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone. If you don't have him this morning, you know where Jesus goes after he tells this story about those who need to repent or likewise perish? He, he tells the story of the patience of God in a parable. It says, a man had a fig tree which had been planted in a vineyard and taken care for, but every time he comes, there's no fruit on it. And he says, for three years I've been coming looking for fruit. I'm going to cut it down. But the vine, the vineyard keeper says, let it alone, sir. Give me, give me some more time. Let me put in some more fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, then all right. But if not, then cut it down. You know what the hope is for anybody in here today not in Christ? You're here today. And just as stark of a warning 
the story in 13, 1 to 5 should be for you about your own mortality, about your own fate. We're all going to die. We don't know the way it's going to happen, but it's coming. Is he could turn around and tell a parable that says, look, if you're here today under the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you still have time because God is patient and kind and the kindness of God can lead to repentance. So trust in him today. Trust in Christ today. Trust in him for your salvation. All of his perfect work for you, all of your sin, he takes on the cross and nails it and forgives it. That's the good news of the gospel this morning. And there's still time. Is he stirring in your heart, calling you to confess your sin and turn to him right now? You do it right where you're seated. Trust in the Lord. Which leads us to the final word on Israel. In the same way that no matter what state you came into this morning, salvation is offered to you. God has not forgotten Israel and his word is still saving to them. Why is it still saving to Israel? Because as Psalm 111.2 says, he will remember his covenant forever. That he can't go back on his word. That he has a promise made to Israel and that will be a promise kept. Paul highlights this in Romans 11, 25 to 29. Starts in verse 2 of chapter 11. God has not rejected his people for whom he foreknew. And there is, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But it's by grace, it's not by works. And then he goes on to say, look, if, if, if Israel, the original tree that God planted, if they did not reject, then you Gentiles wouldn't have been grafted in. But picking up in verse 25, and I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery so you won't be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening that's happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, that's what's happening now. But one day, all Israel will be saved. Why? Because the scripture says, verse 26, the deliverer, who's that? Christ. He'll come from Zion. He'll remove the ungodliness from Jacob. Will Israel remove their own ungodliness in that day? Will they finally get it together? No. It's because of his covenant with them when I take away their sins. So in the time of Paul, yes, the Jews who were persecuting the Christians, why they were in diaspora at this time, they were enemies of the gospel for that reason, but yet from the standpoint of God's choice, they are still what? Beloved. And that is a long, patient love. And what's this all built on? Verse 29 Because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That word means unrepentable, actually. Back to that word repentance, right? Changing of mind. What does God say through Paul in Romans 11, 29 about his promises to Israel to one day save them? It's a promise that is unrepentable. God cannot change his mind. He cannot change his love for them and go back on his promise. That's the good news to Israel. That's the good news to anyone. That this is a God who is still saving. Which leads Paul to say again, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God. The same hope 
back to Abraham in Genesis 12 when he promised him, my covenant is with you. You'll be a father of a multitude of nations. God right there was starting to make a way through a descendant, but just one day or just one way. And in that day when Christ came, he was the fulfillment of that. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one, Jew or Gentile, comes to the Father except through him. Faith in Christ is God's word that still saves. So what's the application for today? As we leave here, just give you two things, and maybe they're just two things you are already thinking about, probably doing, but in the goal of just thinking clearly about this, hopefully has renewed our mind as the word of God promises to do. The first application today would be to pray for the nation of Israel I mean, we, we see that, you know, on a billboard around town or some marquee, and what are we praying for? Well, in light of this, what's their deepest need right now? Their most important need is their salvation, because to pray for the peace of Israel is to pray Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So you pray for whoever it is that you could think of, soldiers over there, civilians over there, they, they have no guarantee of where this war might go, what it might cost them. But they need Christ. And they need to maybe to pray that their eyes would be open to see that He's the Messiah. And their hope is in Him, not in some military effort. Now, important things in life are not always the most urgent things. So yes, you can still pray for their physical safety. But it's just not theirs we're concerned about, is it? We pray for the Palestinian safety. And we pray for repentance and terrorists. I mean, that's the, that's the only hope for this thing to be resolved. But that means a whole worldview that, that rather than rewards their heinous and wicked acts, they would see that it's completely backwards. They've been calling evil good and good evil because it's a false religion that was devised by Satan, the father of lies. And what's his end game? To steal, kill, and destroy. So you pray for that. Pray for that repentance. Pray, pray that they would see in advance, even right now, what one day they will see collectively as a nation is Zechariah 10 shows about how's that all Israel going to work out? It's, as a lot of Bible teachers would say, one of the hardest verses in all the book of Romans to interpret. All Israel being saved, what's that like? Nobody knows for sure, but it's like this in Zechariah 12, verse 10. In that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out. Who's doing the pouring out? God is. They're not figuring this out themselves. I'll pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace. What doesn't Judaism get? Judaism doesn't get grace. It's still work. It's still earning. It's still effort. But in that day of great salvation, when Christ returns, as chapter 14 says, that his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives in the same way he left. In that day, they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they'll mourn for him 
as one mourns for an only son. That's that great salvation. Can we pray towards that day? We sure can. But we could pray that some would actually see it now. That they would come across these scriptures and say, the one whom they've pierced, Isaiah 53, it's Christ. And that the spirit of grace would save them today. So we can pray appropriately and then we can witness appropriately. Right now is a unique opportunity to engage in conversation with people because of a current event. And, um, and here's maybe the one piece of interest they might have, the leverage you might have, and you engage in that conversation as you start talking about evil and good, and you're talking to an unbeliever that you're friends with, a skeptic, a doubter, and they say something's evil, and you say, where does your standard come from for evil? That's a probing question, isn't it? What's your standard for good? And they say, well, come on, we all know that. Do we? Do we know that? You need to look no further than the, the acts of Hamas. You know, they think what they're doing is good. And what Israel's been doing is evil. So, where do we get a moral compass? Where do we get a North Star? And you ask him that question. And you keep asking it till it comes back to something objective outside of themselves. Where's your objective point of reference? The book that helps clarify our vision to not call good evil and evil good. Otherwise, you live in a world that's upside down, moral inversion that leads to moral perversion. Because you don't have any which way to see your way forward without this. Because at some point, it's going to come down to your worldly wisdom versus God's timeless wisdom. But that's, a, that's, a, that's an inroad for an apologetic witness right now. And for you to come back to say, look, you may say, yeah, comparative religion, there's, of course, the Jews would say, hey, two-thirds your Bible. Yeah, I, I read that. And um, Muslims are going to say, yeah, we, we honor that Jesus was a good prophet. But you say, look, no, the dividing line today between the one true God is Jesus Christ and what you do with him as Savior and as Lord. That's your witness today. Nothing's changed. Uh, you, you, can, you can be slow to speak and quick to listen and say, sure, yeah, I see you have that in yours, we have that in ours. But you say, here's what it comes down to. It comes down to we worship Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the great divide between Christianity and Judaism. That's the great divide between Christianity and Islam. It comes down to Jesus Christ. And you are the most important people right now that have that truth to tell the world. To give people what? Hope. Because that's where it's found. Let's pray for that. Father, we thank you for your word today. We, we don't exalt in ourselves we don't put any confidence in the flesh. We don't think too highly of our own thinking because you've given us the mind of Christ. You've given us your spirit to teach us. You've given us your word to be our guide and our guard. What do we have that hasn't been given? And so having been given much, much is required. So in days and weeks ahead, may we feel charitably to the lost. May we think with clarity as we speak. 
And may we use this time to give the best news there is in the world that Christ, you still save. Give us courage, we pray. Give us conviction. Give us compassion. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen.